This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day to you and welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues, and today, Michael Caputo. He is the former spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services during the Trump administration's troubled response to the pandemic. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I really don't know where to start with this interview. You were a lightning rod during the height of the pandemic. Critics of the Trump administration, response to the COVID-19 pandemic, pointing to you as part of the problem. You had to defend yourself against criticism that you were put in place at HHS to undermine the scientist and to sideline anyone who had an opinion contrary to the president's on COVID-19. On the other hand, you're battling cancer. And I've known you long enough to know that when you say that you're going to show up and do an interview like this, you show up, and I appreciate that. So let's start. And I'm going to be honest. I want to put you on the spot. I want you to answer some of the criticism. Do you regret some of the actions that you took at HHS, given that so many people in this country died and frankly continue to die because in the initial stages of the pandemic, they were given bogus information by the Trump administration? Well, I think if if uh, I, I don't agree with the premise of the question, I regret nothing that I did in my official capacity. Um, uh, and uh, I believe that the Trump administration is facing had faced the same difficulties that Joe Biden's administration is facing. In fact, if you look at the numbers right now, uh, Joe Biden is doing no better. In fact, he's doing worse than Donald Trump did, and he's got the Trump vaccines to help him. We had nothing. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not going to sit here and point fingers at Joe Biden either, because I never saw anything, and I think none of us ever seen anything like COVID. The coronavirus is completely novel. We were, you know, smacked straight in the face with it. We had no idea where it came from. Uh, the Chinese were, were deceiving us. There were others that were deceiving us. We were trying to find our way through a dark closet uh, without any information. And in the end, um, I, I think we found our way, most importantly, to a vaccine, to several vaccines in record time. And it was those vaccines that we deployed and then Joe Biden's team expertly deployed to help kind of tamp this down. But the fact of the matter is we're still having problems. A lot of the problems that the Biden team are having are the same problems we did. It has nothing to do with politics. It's got a lot to do with, with the virus. Well, how, how, do, how do you fix some of the problems? You know, obviously one big problem is that there is a large population in this country that doesn't believe the science. You know, and I think there are a lot of people out there who think that the Trump administration is the problem with this, even though the former president himself 
has been vaccinated. He's not out there encouraging others, his supporters, to get vaccinated. And that's a problem. Well, that's not exactly true either. I've seen at least four, maybe five times, perhaps even more in minor interviews, during major interviews and major speeches, that he encouraged people to get vaccinated. He didn't tell them they must do it because that is not, the President President Trump is not going to say that the vaccines should be mandated or much of anything else should be mandated. From the very beginning, uh, he told me that he wanted us to put together a communications plan to encourage people to get vaccinated with facts and figures and strong arguments, but to forget about the idea of mandating it. And I I can count two or three times in major interviews where he said, get vaccinated uh, as soon as you can. I've been vaccinated. You should be vaccinated. And by the way, Jeff, I was the one who named Operation Warp Speed. I was there when President Trump said, yes, do it, go for it. It was a huge risk to shorten the timelines by collapsing you know, distribution on top of development, on top of manufacturing. Uh, and it, it was something that would have failed. Uh, the Trump administration and President Trump himself would have been fed that on a daily basis. But it was a huge success, a huge success. And he himself, I've been vaccinated three times myself. I've out, I went out at the president's urging, speaking at, uh, at pro-Trump organizations, pro-Trump events after uh, he left office encouraging his supporters to get to get vaccinated as assistant secretary of health for public affairs. Um, we put together with the president's support, a $300 million project to, in the end, convince people to get vaccines. It was an innovative project that we wanted to, to focus entirely on facts and figures and convincing arguments to put that out there, to convince people to get vaccinated. We looked at vaccine hesitant groups that, which, you were pretty easily picked out. We saw it in, in polling and other ways. We knew the African-American community was going to be vaccine hesitant for, for good reason, if you look at history. We knew that the Native American community was going to be vaccine hesitant uh, because of their traditions. Uh, we knew there were other subsets of the American people that were going to be vaccine hesitant. We never knew that a, that a, sub, a significant group of Republicans w- were going to be vaccine hesitant. If you look at the typical breakdown of you know, the kind of anti-vaccine forces that you think about before uh, COVID, it was about 50-50 Democrats and Republicans. We didn't think it was going to be a particularly Republican problem, but it's become one. And when I saw the president at Mar-a-Lago, I think it was in April when he invited us there, after it became clear that um, I had, a, no, uh, I had a, a diagnosis that cancer was gone in my body, we went there to celebrate. We talked about it, and he said that he was going to encourage his supporters to get the vaccine and that he thinks that they should. But in, in no way, Jeff, under any circumstances, will you see President Trump or someone who believes like President Trump supporting forced vaccinations through mandates? But listen, I and we're, and we're going to pause and listen to this soundbite from President Trump during the pandemic as COVID-19 was spreading across the country, here's what he said. This is going to go away without a vaccine. It's going to go away, and it's uh, we're not going to see it again, hopefully. You know, there are some viruses and flus that came, and they went for a vaccine. They never found the vaccine, and they've disappeared. They've never shown up again. They, got, they die, too, like everything else. They die, too. Many people don't even know they have it. They have it, or they have sniffles, or they have a very minor sign. And they recover, not only recover, they probably have immunity, whether it's short-term, long-term, but they have probably immunity. 
All right. So, Michael, the former president, president at that time saying, hey, COVID's going to disappear. It's fine. Everything's going to be okay." That was essentially the message coming out of the White House and coming from the president. And so I think early on, his supporters got the message that this wasn't serious. This wasn't a big deal, that this was some liberal media uh, storyline to scare people. I can tell you when the when COVID first hit, I was at home in my house with my family, my wife and my two daughters, two of my three daughters, um, trying to figure out how to survive, even to thrive under COVID. I lost my business. Uh, we were busy like everybody else sitting on our couch watching the COVID task force press conferences and then our governor and then our county executive would always follow up. And in Buffalo, we were all hang we were all hanging on every word of the president's uh, of Governor Cuomo's uh, and of our county executive trying to figure out how to live. I was then thinking about how to, you know, like everybody else, I was going to the grocery store and only to the grocery store. Our family was st- was staying locked down. Our children were out of school, and we took it very seriously. I was not in the White House when some of those statements were made. But when the president called me and asked me to be the assistant secretary for public affairs over at HHS, I came at it with a very, very serious attitude. I arrived under um, uh, Secretary Alex Azar. Alex Azar took it very seriously. Dr. Robert Redfield at the CDC, Dr. Stephen Hahn at FDA. Michael, sorry to interrupt, but just to, to give it some perspective, by the time you walked into HHS, Azar, Redfield, Fauci, that whole team was under attack. In what way? Well, I mean, they were being criticized by people in the administration, uh, you know, the president's supporters outside the administration. It was a tough environment for you to walk into. It was. And and actually, all of those doctors were also fighting um, and because it was it was a fraught environment. People were. They weren't panicked. They were working with their best capacities, but there were there were elements of HHS that weren't even talking to each other, um, and it was something. It was an environment where the communications were completely upside down. When the president called me, he said, "Look, this stuff is messed up. You have to come in and straighten it out." And I did my best to do so. When I arrived, one of the first stories that were written that was written was that I was hired. Because Alex Azar was gonna, was about to be fired on his way out, I think it was saying, and that I was there to escort him out the door. That is not what the president told me. At, at no time did the president nor the vice president tell me, Michael, do this or that, you know, in opposition to Alex Azar. In, in fact, I spent most of my time, well, much of my time in the first couple of weeks fighting off these stories that were being planted by someone, some people we don't know. We, we assumed they were coming from some quarters of the White House, that Alex Azar was on his way out. And I considered every single one of those leaks against Alex Azar, a member of the cabinet, an attack on the president of the United States. I mean, let's face it, Jeff, every member of the cabinet is a personal choice of the president of the United States. An attack on his personal choice is an attack on him. So, yeah, I kind of walked into uh, a screwed up situation but the relationships that I was watching close up and that I was kind of jump, you know, poured into improved after I got there. Not necessarily because of me, but I think the president got sick of some of the fighting. Some of the people at the White House that were being accused of back channeling uh, arguments against uh, Alex Azar and et cetera, 
uh, were uh, they left shortly thereafter and things got better. Well, but but you also faced allegations that you were interfering with scientific reports coming out of HHS. How do you respond to that? Wrong. Incorrect. False. Poppycock, I guess is a good word for it. I, you know, I'm sure this is a family show, so I can't actually say what I think. But the fact of the matter is, as Assistant Secretary uh, for Public Affairs at, the, at Health and Human Services, I did not have input on final reports of scientists. I just didn't. They didn't, you know, everything that came out of the department had to be passed by my office, but I had no power of rejection. I had no power to even edit them without uh, the consent of the scientists who wrote them. I came in as a, I'm an expert in emergency public relations. I'm an expert in, you know, catastrophe reaction, uh, you know, PR, but I didn't come in with medical experience. Um, as you know, Jeff, the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs at, you know, the Department of Defense and isn't necessarily a veteran. You know, the Public Affairs Assistant Secretary at HUD isn't necessarily a housing expert. But what I was and what I still am is an expert in public relations. And yet I hired an epidemiologist, uh, a Ph.D. Uh, in, uh, out of uh, uh, out of uh, Oxford. And, um, you know, he had been he had been uh, published six times, peer reviewed, published six times on COVID, which, by the way, was more peer reviewed publications than most people, most of the scientists at HHS. He was also a um, uh, what they call a methodologist. Dr. Paul Alexander was a methodologist. He specialized in looking at other people's reports and his assignment from me was to review all reports that came that, that went through my office and just tell me what they were. Let me understand what they were. And my job in return was to make sure I, I did it uh, uh, sometimes twice weekly, but at least a weekly email to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that you know Mark and I called the No Surprises email. Uh, and I would send him an overview as to what's coming out of HHS so that there would be no surprises. It wasn't called the Stop This Report email. It wasn't called uh, anything aggressive or and they didn't call for aggressive action. My office did nothing to stop reports. But at, at one point of time, uh, Dr. Alexander did get way too spirited in his communications with some of the scientists, encouraging them to make changes. This was not under my direction. And in fact, he had no business uh, demanding a closer review of any of the publications, and he was told that. But the the the, the public, uh, the uh, the stories that came out after my cancer diagnosis, that I was trying to interfere with science, were just bogus. The fact of the matter is, um, those stories were twisted because I'm close to the president in order to make the president look bad. As Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, my job was to know what was coming out not to change what was coming out. According to Political, there are people who say that you fostered the appearance of political bias in the effort to approve a COVID-19 vaccine, which ended up sowing distrust of the FDA at a time when health leaders desperately needed people to accept a vaccine in order to create the immunity necessary to defeat COVID-19. How do you respond to that? Bogus. Poppycock. 
complete BS. It, I, I had no opportunity to respond to them. I was sick, uh, unconscious, in a in a bed uh, with with. Uh, just going through treacherous cancer treatments, and I could not respond. We did reach out to Politico to get a response to the allegations. Politico told us that it stands by its stories, which make clear that Michael Caputo knew about them, had a chance to comment, and either declined or referred inquiries to the HHS department. I can tell you, I was the one who, who was in charge of Operation Warp Speed Public Affairs. I, in fact, with the help of, of some of the doctors from the FDA, I was the one who named Operation Warp Speed. I was absolutely pro-vaccine. I've been vaccinated three times myself right now. And, and, and I knew uh, from my very close friendship with Stephen Hahn, who was the head of the FDA, that only through a vaccine would this country ever be able to find our way out of this mess. Somehow the people, like this reporter at Politico who uh, apparently was uh, then hired by Washington Post after the beating he gave me when I was unconscious in my hospital bed. Um, he somehow said that I was attacking the CDC and the FDA, when at the same time, I count among my close friends now, the former director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, and the former director of the FDA, Stephen Hahn. Now, I'm not saying none of that went on, but it wasn't done by me. My job... At, the, at HHS was to make sure these men and women were able to communicate. I spent my time making sure that happened. In fact, I advocated for more communication from the doctors and scientists, not less. And from my perspective, that was a battle worth fighting because there were people in the White House that didn't want the doctors to speak. Um, and it, you know, it became quite a problem between me and, and some of the folks at the White House, never with the president, by the way. The president never told me, stop Tony Fauci from speaking to the media. Stop Dr. Redfield. Stop Stephen Hahn. Here is Dr. Anthony Fauci talking to The Atlantic just days after Michael Caputo left because of his cancer diagnosis. And on the same day that Caputo left HHS, his hand-picked scientific advisor, Paul Alexander, was immediately terminated at HHS. Here is Dr. Fauci on the interference he and others at the CDC experienced from Paul Alexander. It's been unfortunate what happened with the try and manipulate of the CDC. There was an individual in the department who, as no, is past history. That person is no longer there. The person who was trying to influence the CDC and even me with emails is gone. I never listened to the person. Just don't bother me. Get out of here. I mean, that's the way it was. Michael, uh, if, if you listen to Michael Cohen, Michael Cohen has always maintained that President Trump, when he gives you an order, he doesn't really give you an order, but you get the message. I didn't any, I mean, I don't know how Michael Cohen got his coded message from the president. I've known Michael Cohen for a while. He's a bit of a, a prevaricator. Um, but from my perspective, the president was very direct with me. He didn't even hint at anything like this. He said very directly, get the communications under control. That was my job. That's all my job was. He never even hinted. I can tell you that uh, there were those in, in the communications department at the White House at the time um, her, who were more direct about it, but I didn't obey them. They weren't my bosses. I reported to the president of the United States and the secretary of health. And I can tell you that the secretary of health 
never said anything like that either. There was this perception of this conflict between the doctors and the Trump administration. I can tell you my relationships with my clients all my life have been close. No matter how difficult my clients are, my job is to is to serve them. I saw the doctors of the coronavirus task force who were part of HHS as my clients. That included Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Robert Redfield, Dr. Stephen Hahn, Seema Verma, you know, uh, Dr. Jerome Adams. All of them were were very important spokesmen in this pandemic. I I saw a need for more doctors communicating, not less, more public health information, not less. And every single one of those doctors knows that. And I advocated for them against the uh, the leadership of the of the, di- the director of communications at the White House, who wanted none of that, who didn't even have the skill set necessary to make those kinds of decisions. I've become a devout Catholic after the Russia investigations and the, the depths of the morass of the COVID response. You know, a lot of the, uh, you know, my ability to even handle those pressures came from just being, trying to, you know, speaking to my priests and and praying to my God. But the, Dr. Robert Redfield is unusual, but uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, as a man of science, is also quite a man of God. He's a devout traditional Catholic and someone who I became very friendly with. One day I was sitting in my office drinking coffee with Dr. Redfield and I asked him, I said, why did God, if he's a loving God, visit a pandemic upon his people? And he said, Michael, that's an interesting question. And then my phone rang. And I turned to my left and looked across my office trying to see who was on my phone. It was no caller ID. And while I had my head turned, Dr. Redfield had stopped in the middle of his sentence in answering my question and poked me in the neck with his, with his, with his forefinger. He said, Michael, what's that? And I looked back at him. And uh, he said, that's your lymph node. It's hard as a, as a rock. You have to go to the doctor immediately. And within hours, I had my a lymph node removed. I don't know if it was hours, but shortly thereafter, I had my lymph node removed over at the NIH by the surgeon in chief of the United States um, under the assistance of the director of the National Cancer Institute. And within hours after that uh, biopsy, they came back and told me that it was indeed uh, cancer and that I needed to undergo more biopsies of my throat because it appeared to be squamous cell carcinoma of the throat. They were concerned because having traveled from my throat into my lymph node, they thought it might have already gone through the blood-brain barrier and therefore I was probably a goner if it had. But my life spun out from that point. The president put me on medical leave. Um, I went into cancer care back home in Buffalo it turned out that it was squamous cell carcinoma. It was uh, in my throat. And uh, m- my cancer hospital in Buffalo, uh, Roswell Park Cancer Institute, recommended uh, uh, one detailed uh, form of, ther- of, of treatment. And I went for my second opinion. And my second opinion was quite different. One recommended extensive radiation. The other recommended no radiation. And, and I didn't, I was confused because I knew radiation on my throat. They wanted to do it 35 times. It would certainly destroy my throat uh, while trying to heal me. And I was con- concerned. And while I was concerned, uh, Tony Fauci called me just to check up on me because these doctors from the coronavirus task force, every one of them um, would call me because they were all very concerned. And when Tony called me, 
I told him what the problem, I'm confused. I don't really know what to do. I mean, uh, I know that the, my choice between treatment A or treatment B could be the, the, the difference between surviving or dying of cancer. And Tony said, listen, um, you stand by, I'm going to uh, put together a panel of doctors from the National Cancer Institute, and we are going to interview both treatment teams and your general practitioner, and we will discuss it, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. So Tony Fauci actually chaired a second opinion panel of two doctors from the National Cancer Institute. They interviewed Roswell. They interviewed the other hospital that had given me the, the alternative. They interviewed my my general practitioner's office, you can imagine how surprised they were to hear from Tony Fauci on the phone. In fact, I think they hung up on him. Then Tony Fauci said, hi, it's Tony Fauci for doctor so-and-so. And they said, yeah, sure. And they hung up on him. But he got back to me 48 hours later. He said, Michael, you need to go to Roswell. It's unanimous on our part that you need radiation and chemotherapy, not surgery and chemotherapy. Absolutely unanimous. So that's the treatment I chose. And I'm now cancer-free for six months. Uh, I know I owe that to Dr. Redfield and Dr. Fauci and the doctors uh, of the National Cancer Institute. And by the way, Dr. Hahn, who I, I speak to still very frequently, uh, who discovered via telephone, by the way, not by examining me, that I had an infection that was slowing my recovery from my treatments down to a, to a crawl. Because he couldn't understand why, after 35 radiation treatments and many chemo treatments, why my throat wasn't healing. And he asked me some questions. He didn't even look at me via Zoom. And he said, Michael, you have thrush. This is very common in uh, patients who come out of radiation therapy, especially in uh, throat cancer. You need to go to the hospital immediately. I did. They diagnosed me with thrush. And they put me on a regimen of 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 uh, drugs to treat it. It's a fairly treatable infection. And I went directly into recovery from there forward. Um, somehow, if people out there making the story up that I didn't have a good relationship with the doctors, um, I got proof that that's exactly the opposite. This, this has been a long road for you. You, know, you talked about the Russian investigation. Yes, you were under scrutiny in connection with the Russia investigation during the, the 2016 campaign and whether there were any contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives. You are also, uh, well, you've told me in the past that Roger Stone is a mentor of yours. Why is it you, you seem to find yourself at the center of a lot of controversy? Would you acknowledge that? I do. Um, I acknowledge it completely. And um, uh, my wife would tell you uh, that that will no longer happen <laughs> because uh, it has caused real heartache for my wife and my daughters. Um, but, you know, uh, that's the life I've led. I never shied away from controversy. I got into politics as a young man after I served in the U.S. Army Infantry. Um, you know, I served uh, my first campaign was the 1984 Reagan reelection. I served under Jack Kemp. And after Jack Kemp was defeated in the primary uh, for by uh, George H.W. Bush 41, I went down to work in the Contra camps in Central America. Um, that was probably my first step deep into controversy. If you remember those, the Contra wars were a real divisive thing in Washington. But I, I, I was a real proponent of American-style democracy and very anti-communist. And I put my 
money where my mouth was as an infantry, as a you know an army trained uh, soldier. I thought uh, uh, that I had something uh, to offer, and my life continued on uh, end of controversy. I worked uh, with uh, the uh, uh, the mujahideen uh, who were fighting the Soviets as an anti-communist uh, that, you know, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, that was important to me. And then when the wall fell in uh, across Eastern Europe, um, I was offered an op- opportunity by the Clinton administration uh, after I served as a director of media services at uh, the Bush re-election and, and the Clintons beat us. I was offered a position as a, an election official, uh, a director of a, of a USAID project in Moscow to help write the election law in Russia and to help train them to, to run democratic elections by the Clinton administration. Uh, but, no. Catch that irony. The Clinton administration sent me to Russia to meddle in their elections. I went for a year and I stayed for almost seven. Um, I became very interested in Russian, Russian, uh, the Russian transition to democracy, became uh, an advisor to the Yeltsin administration. And when Putin came in, um, he made sure that the American consultants that were working with the Kremlin and working with the Duma and the Federation Council were made sure to know that we were unwelcome. And I came home after uh, Putin was selected to be the next president. So yeah, I, I, I have lived a controversial life. There's no question. I picked my friends according to their capacities, not according to whether or not they were invited to all the right parties. That's how I got to know Roger Stone so well. Is he my mentor? Yeah, I probably, one of many, uh, but he is one of my best friends. And I stand directly behind all of my best friends. I'm close to Paul Manafort uh, as well. And uh, uh, those, my friendships, have caused me some difficulty. All right, Michael, that's that's an understatement. It's, it's, it's definitely an understatement, but I can tell you, going through the interrogations in the House and the Senate and the Mueller te- by the Mueller team, I knew exactly what was going on. I knew exactly what was going on. I, I told them in and, and the Senate that I knew that a Democratic operative named Dan Jones was feeding them all the information they needed to run their, uh, their, uh, uh, their, their investigations. This, this whole, you know, the, the Clinton dossier was feeding this whole thing. The fact of the matter is, nobody. Uh, I know you disagree with that, Jeff. I've read your book. I know you disagree with that, but I was there. Oh, you read my book? Of course, of course. And you interviewed me after. I think you interviewed me right after I got out of the Mueller investigation, or, or shortly after I got out of the House. One of the two. I, I understand your perspective on these things, but we're watching the Durham team take this apart, you know, scintilla by scintilla. Now we see the Sussman trial coming up. And I think we're going to find more and more of these Hillary Clinton operatives and the lawyers who work for Hillary Clinton coming out as people who put together a hoax in order to A, defeat Donald Trump, and B, when they fail to do that, to stop Donald Trump by any means necessary. President uh, Trump won that election. But, you know, despite what Durham finds about the, the dossier, there were, there were some aspects of the dossier that did check out, including... Konstantin Kalimnik, who was a close associate of Paul Manafort, the former campaign chair. So there is there was some truth there to what was going on. And it, you know, why the, the head of a campaign would have any association whatsoever with someone who was at one time Russian intelligence, it's bizarre, don't you think? That's not true. No, it's not bizarre. What's bizarre is that someone would call Kostya Kalimnik Russian intelligence. Anybody who knows that guy knows that that's laughable. No one's ever shown any proof. It's all been redacted. They, oh, it's, you know, super secret. There's no proof Konstantin Kalimnik was ever 
a member of Russian intelligence or ever under the influence of Russian intelligence. Actually, the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee, which was led by a Republican majority at the time, they were the first to report that Konstantin Kalimnik was a Russian intelligence officer. Yeah, if you look at the court documents, anything in there that talks about their proof of him being a Russian intelligence asset is either redacted or it doesn't exist. Well, but, and I, and I, I understand your point. What you've also told me is that your family has been targeted in this atmosphere. And there is documented evidence of that police reports. Your family has been harassed. Uh, and, you know, this is a personal statement. You know, I don't think it's fair for people to attack families. You know, in this country, you may have a disagreement in terms of your views. But to go after people in such a harsh manner is beyond the pale. Yeah, it started, you know, I'm married to a woman I met when I was working in Ukraine, Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, Marina uh, uh, and I, uh, on January 20th, 2017, we danced with the president and first lady at the inauguration. On February 20th, 2017, my wife and I took photos out in front of the federal building in Buffalo, New York, after she was sworn in as a citizen of the United States. And on March 20th, 2017, uh, Representative Jackie Speer at a House Intelligence Committee hearing where James Comey uh, was being uh, uh, was testifying, uh, basically insinuated that I was a traitor, that I was working for Russia, and that my wife was also a traitor. Our, our lives went from celebration to disaster in 90 days. That day after Jackie Spear lied about my family, we got innumerable telephone calls threatening us. Wish Mr. Caputo to burn in hell and die of cancer for that liar who caused so many people to get COVID. Your kids are going to hate you. Your grandkids are going to hate you. You're evil. You're, and we're going to put you in prison. Die. And our lives stayed at that tenor until the summer of uh, 2021. It got worse at times, got better at times. But uh, uh, And I know that uh, there are people on, on the opposite side of me that suffer uh, similarly. Uh, some, the fact that families are attacked on either side is unworthy and just untoward. I mean, I listen, Jeff, you know, I, I accept my role. I accept the fact that, you know, I, I'm culpable for what I say. I am responsible for my tweets. I am responsible for the things I've said. And I'm willing to defend them or to, uh, in one way, shape, or form, respond to criticism. But when you go after my seven-year-old daughter, my five-year-old daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, my wife, it's just unpalatable. You know, because people could not get to Donald Trump, uh, you know, billionaires are hard, to, are hard to hang. They couldn't get to his family. The children of billionaires are hard, hard to catch up to. They went for the president's friends. And I'm no billionaire. I come from a family in a trailer park. You know, I, I, I come from blue-collar roots. And the fact of the matter is, I couldn't defend myself. When the Russia investigations came down, it took everything away from my family. Everything. I was lucky and blessed that I was able to raise some of the money for the $300,000 plus I spent in legal fees. But there were dozens of families just like ours. Dozens of families whose children were harassed. And by the way, there were five of us that got cancer. One of them died. Cancer is a stress-borne disease. You understand that? And, and when it comes down to it, this nation is in a terrible place. I admit that uh, 
that I have uh, done my share to turn the volume up on the vitriol. I was raised to punch back when I'm punched. In fact, I was raised to punch back 10 times whenever I'm punched. But cancer has got me rethinking that. And in the end, my family, we were, we, we were starting to get threats this last summer at our front door. Uh, Antifa was threatening to come to my house, had come to my house. We were getting people that were threatening my children at my front door. And, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, people on the, on the right who wanted to protect my family were showing up to protect my family. And let's face it, Jeff, I don't want anybody at my front door. My daughters were terrified. Even the people who came to pray for us. We had crowds of 50, 60 people in front of our house to pray for us, to pray for me and my cancer diagnosis. As much as I appreciated the support, I want my children to have a normal life. So on August 1st, I pulled the ripcord. And without even selling our home, we left our the hometown where I wanted to raise my children, where I grew up. We now live in Florida, uh, in a place where I'm out of reach, uh, where Antifa can't get to us. And if they try, it's also a state with the castle doctrine. So in, no longer in New York where I can't defend myself, I can defend my family here. So in the end, you know, I, I had to make a decision. Do I want to continue in this political world or do I want to get to have a normal life? My wife made that decision for me. She and my children all believe that we needed to get out of it. So I'm out. I'm in the insurance industry now. I'm also in a master's program for theology. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll find some answers for what's went down. Michael Caputo. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram. At Jeff Begay's six. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.